This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida, God's Country, in the Melon Law Studio. Melon Law, the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Caters, a full-service law firm and protected 24-7, uh, 365 by crime prevention. We are scheduled today to uh, talk with American Commitment President Bill Kirpin. Uh, we are awaiting that connection. Uh, sometimes these connections are uh, problematic because of ex- um, circumstances we can't control, perhaps something on their end. If we don't hear from Phil, here he comes. He's usually right like clockwork. And so we'll get going here in a moment. Um, Phil is um, always a, a great resource. The American Commitment is a think tank and conservative think tank. And I've done a survey of uh, key healthcare concerns of voters 55 years or plus. And the demographics of our show are roughly that. So those of you who are listening in today, we should all learn something from a pretty thorough and extensive uh, um, analysis and um, investigation, if you will, of all the concerns that we get into as we get older. And we're going to key in on AARP and uh, some of the, um, I'm no doubt, uh, programs that they have that some of you might be involved with, health affordability, um, is one, be one of the things that will be on your mind, um, uh, financial relationships and activities on behalf of um, the users of these um, services. Um, so we'll be uh, checking in. I see Phil has appeared in my screen, but I don't see Phil yet. So um, we will talk along until we get to see him. And are you there, Phil? Yeah, but I can't um, I can't give you a video because I'm in the car. So I've, uh, I've done Poor planning again. I have to apologize. Well, we'll take your voice out of work. Um, as long as your mind is intact and you're not worried about being run over by an errant driver. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, we have some of the worst drivers in the world in Washington, D.C. because we have some, some of the most self-important people. So it goes together. Are you on way to someplace where you will have video soon or how's that working? Well, I'm coming home from dropping kids at camp. So, uh, not not for a while. Okay, good then. Well, I was just talking as we were uh, waiting for you to connect with us. You know, our demographics of our show are roughly pretty much what you've got here in this health affordability analysis, if you will. So everyone should be all ears about this. Uh, understand that this is a comprehensive survey of 55 plus on key health care concerns. Um, where would you like to begin with that uh, discussion? Well, let me explain why we did this and uh, what we're trying to accomplish, uh, if that's all right. Um, we've had this major, we've had this recurring problem in all of the national health care policy debates, at least back to Obamacare and probably even earlier than that, which is um, AARP has enormous influence uh, and they represent themselves as speaking for seniors. And so they say, jump and the politicians go flying through the ceiling. Uh, they've got an enormous uh, stroke and influence, uh, partially because of their reputation, but also just partially because of their financial wherewithal, the billions of dollars uh, that they bring in and that they spend uh, much of on political events and advertising and so forth. And, you know, of course, they stay within the nonprofit law, so they don't say vote for this person, but they say, you know, so-and-so is a hero of seniors. They give the loving treatment to people. And by the way, last year, they gave their uh, loving treatment to about 100 members of the House and Senate, and only one of them was a Republican. So they they are uh, very much uh, on one side politically. 
But what they've been able to do is uh, really uh, direct the these healthcare policy debates. And of course, they infamously endorsed Obamacare, even though seniors were overwhelmingly against it. And then, you know, we had another example of this last year during Inflation Reduction Act when, um, you know, they came out very aggressively in favor of it and did lots of advertising and events and so forth, even though kind of the centerpiece of that bill was to use price controls to take about $280 billion out of Medicare drug spending, but not give it to seniors, not use it to shore up Medicare, but use it to pay for, you know, giveaways to wind and solar companies and electric vehicles and all the other nonsense unrelated spending that was in that bill. And, you know, what we suspected, but wanted to find out is, you know, what seniors would not be for that. Seniors would actually be pretty outraged uh, when they heard what that bill actually did and that AERP supported it. So we wanted to to do a survey and we went to a very credible pollster, uh, McLaughlin and Associates. And what we asked them to do is we asked them to design a survey that would give us statistically valid results for older voters overall, but also would be large enough to give us statistically valid results for AERP members specifically. And so that's why it's a very large survey. I think the N equals 1,600 overall, but we've got about 700 AARP members. And you know, one of the interesting features of this, the results that we got is on almost every question, AARP members weren't much different than older voters overall. And we got, uh, we got some pretty stunning numbers about Inflation Reduction Act and about AARP's relationship with United Health and the, the 5% skim they take off the top of the premiums every month and the, uh, in the insurance products they sell, the billion dollars or so they make that way. Um, so I, I think, I mean, we can go through, you know, sort of the, the specific findings and so forth or answer any questions yet. But I think that what we really showed is that, you know, Republicans should have been talking about this bill. They should have been on offense against it and, and really uh, criticizing and attacking what Democrats did, because uh, if you phrase these things uh, the way that we tested in this poll, these are really winning issues. And I think they really missed an opportunity last year, mostly running from this and changing the subject and kind of assuming that they could win without really engaging issues. But this is, uh, you know, th- this idea of taking money out of Medicare drug spending to use it as a piggy bank to spend on other federal programs. That's a big political loser for Democrats, and uh, it's a big opportunity for Republicans to go after. Bill Kirpin uh, actually just audio, and uh, he is en route here from taking his kids to camp. Uh, nevertheless, we have a clear connection. If we have to change a little bit of connection, we also have a call-in line, which we'll convey to uh, Phil should we need it. And also, I don't think you can hear it because I have a very sophisticated uh, sound system here in the studio, but we are experiencing a re-roofing of uh, just above our heads here at the studio. I don't think this microphone picks it up, but if you hear a pounding once in a while, it's not somebody beating me on the head to remember what I'm supposed to say. It is actually, um, and we have to do this when it doesn't rain in Florida. So um, we are dodging those clouds, Phil. Although I think- you don't, you, don't have, you don't have somebody down in the dungeon trying to get out? No, 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 we don't have anybody down. Not to my knowledge, anyway. That's funny. Uh, you know, one of the things which I'm an AARP guy, and one of the things which really chagrins me, and I don't know, I had to call him the other day, and and then I had to get into a discussion with, the, the, get on the internet and all that, the donut. Um, I don't. I, may I go directly to the donut and get you to explain, if you can, for me in the uh, dumbed down terms, what they do with these drug prices? Well, the original design of the Medicare drug benefit when it was passed, uh, it, it had, it basically had two, two separate benefits. It had your regular kind of everyday benefit uh, until you hit the maximum of that. Then it had a donut hole where you had to pay out of pocket. And then it had a catastrophic benefit, essentially, when you got through the donut hole, if you maxed out. You know, above that, the, 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 the catastrophic benefit would kick in. And the theory behind that was that this would prevent people from, you know, buying drugs they don't really need, uh, that it re- would reduce, uh, you know, overutilization was the theory behind it. And uh, it was extremely unpopular uh, for obvious reasons. And what ended up happening was they, they ended up closing it essentially 
by getting the industry to agree uh, to, to pay to fill in the donut hole. And that was one of the concessions that was made during Obamacare. And so it, the, the, the plans now, by and large, don't really have that feature anymore, uh, at least not the way they did. We have no coverage. Uh, most people now have, um, you know, pr- pretty good coverage even in the donut hole. But it was the, uh, th- that, was the, that was the theory of it. Well, I see here in your notes that uh, above 90% of the people polled believe the Inflation Reduction Act's IRA Medicare drug savings should be passed on directly to individual seniors in Medicare. Can you address that? Yeah, we asked this question a few different ways. I think, you know, we first said, you know, should it be kept in Medicare? You know, we said, should the money that was saved in changes to Medicare uh, drug pricing be kept in Medicare? And I think 85% said yes. We said, you know, are you concerned that they gave it to, you know, solar panel companies and electric vehicles and all this unrelated? And that actually went up to 90%. And then we asked the question that you just mentioned. We, we sort of phrased it as, you know, if the savings are there, should they be passed on to seniors rather than spent by politicians? And I think that got the highest number of all. That got about 90%. So, you know, there are a lot of things they could have done other than what they did, which is spend the money on other government spending. Um, they could have used it to shore up Medicare's finances. They could have passed it on directly to seniors and discounts. Um, but, but I think the main point and the, the big opportunity for conservatives and Republicans is to say, look, you know, we don't love price controls because we're worried they're going to lead to less new drugs and, you know, it cause all the problems that price controls cause. But if you're going to do them, then the savings all should have been kept in Medicare or sent to seniors. It should never have been used as a piggy bank for politicians to spend on other unrelated programs. And I think if you phrase it that way, it's just through the roof. Everyone agrees with you. They'll nod their head. I mean, it's just, there's no, there's no legitimate argument for what they did, which is use Medicare drug savings as a piggy bank for other unrelated spending. And uh, that should have been a major theme, I think, in last year's election. And I hope that it will be a major theme uh, going into next year, because I, you know, if, if they get away with this and they don't pay a political price for it, then every time they want to spend money on anything, they're going to go to Medicare as a piggy bank for it. It's too easy for them to do if they can get away with it. Well, it's not unprecedented. They use uh, Social Security for a piggy bank and it's our money. Um, well, Social Security for many years ran operating surpluses and uh, President Clinton, to his credit, said we ought to be investing these surpluses in real assets, put them in stock market, let them grow to pay for future benefits. He was rebuked. He was never able to get that done. President Trump, uh, to his greater benefit, I think this was the smartest way to do it. He, uh, sorry, President Bush, I should say. Uh, he said, let's take the surpluses and put them into personal accounts that people can choose what to invest them in. Um, and But he could never get that done. And now there are no surpluses. They sent them all. Now there's just a file cabinet full of bonds. And, um, you know, when the bonds are redeemed, they print the money and it's inflationary. And so, uh, unfortunately, all those many, many years that Social Security was in cash flow surplus were uh, wasted because the politicians spent all that money and just stuffed, you know, treasuries, IOUs in a cabinet. And now Social Security is cash flow negative and... You know, there, there are no real assets there, and the surpluses were wasted, squandered, spent on unrelated spending. It's really a scandal, and it was a huge missed opportunity to, you know, the, you know, if we had fixed Social Security the right way when it was running big surpluses, then we would have been able to pay people higher benefits. Mm-hmm. Now there's going to be a reckoning, you know, sometime in the next few years. People are going to get benefit cuts, and it's going to be, uh, you know, pretty, pretty terrible. But I don't know how you avoid it, unfortunately, because they – did waste all that money when they had the chance when it was in surplus. Uh, looking at your notes here again, I think it's just a good item to go down and discuss with you while you're driving. We can prompt you with these notes. Um, explain the relationship of United Healthcare. About 90% of the people, according to your survey, are concerned about AARP earning billions in royalties. Uh, the relationship of United Healthcare to Medicare at all, it must be. Yeah. Kind of murky. Well, you know, AARP's main business is not uh, membership dues anymore. It hasn't been for a long time. They get about three or four times as much money from their relationship with United Health as they do from membership dues. And the way this works is, if you have an AARP branded United Health 
Medicare Part D plan or Medicare Advantage plan or Medigap supplemental plan, every month when you pay that premium to United Health, they take 5% off the top and they send it to ARP. And that 5% skim, which by the way, most of the voters in our survey think that's a junk fee, uh, which is interesting because Biden's obsessed with junk fees. But that 5% is worth about $800 million to a $1 billion a year, which say United is selling 16 to $20 billion a year in premiums of ARP branded plants. This is a massive, massive big business for them. And the 5% skim that ARP gets is almost a billion dollars a year. It's about $800 million a year. And you know, that is a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money even in the business world, but in the political world, it's just an astronomical amount of money. It makes them by far the biggest political player, and that's what allowed them to do you know, sort of the loving treatment of 100 or so members of the House and Senate, as I mentioned. Uh, they, they are able to follow that money um, back into politics in large part, and that kind of keeps this whole thing going, and people don't know about it. They, they don't know. I mean, there's a tiny, tiny fine print disclaimer that says a royalty is paid to AARP, but it doesn't say how much it is, and it doesn't say that it's every month forever. And so people don't know. They're not, and by the way, somebody just completely cut me off from a different lane. So uh, <laughs> as, you were, as you were concerned, might happen. Um, people don't know about it, and they're very concerned about it when you tell them, because there's an obvious conflict of interest. You know, AARP only ever talks about drug costs. And, you know, people are concerned about drug costs, but they never talk about premiums. Now, why don't they ever talk about premiums? They make more money when premiums are higher, literally. They take 5% off the top of premiums. So high premiums are good for them. Uh, they never talk about premiums, even though seniors, when you survey them in our survey and in ARP's own survey, premiums and other insurance-related costs, deductibles, co-pays, are a significantly higher concern than prescription drug costs. But they, you know, but if you look at ARP's advocacy, you would think the only thing seniors are worried, you know, the only cost they have, you would think, are the drugs, because they never talk about insurance costs, because they're in the insurance business. And they've got a massive conflict of interest. And so, you know, we asked a bunch of polls about this and uh, all the numbers were off the chart. Uh, people were very concerned about this. They do think it creates a conflict of interest. And probably the, the biggest number I've ever seen in any poll ever. I mean, I don't think you can get 95% of people who agree the sky is blue. But 95% of older voters uh, who were surveyed in our survey, 95% think that AARP should disclose in their advertising and in their advocacy messages this relationship that they have with United Health, 95%, and they do not. They never mention it. And so um, I really think that shows you, that tells you that we got to keep talking about this. We've got to create the transparency that they refuse to create uh, so that people understand, look, I mean, maybe that's the best plan for you. Maybe your providers are in it. That's the one you want to be in. But understand, every month when you pay that premium, they're taking 5% off the top, and it's going to ARP, and it's mostly going to you know, support Democratic candidates and causes. And so I, I think we it's really critical uh, that we make people aware of that because they do think there should be transparency on that. We've got a question on the chat line here. Do your uh, American Commit ever converse with citizens against government waste? Yeah, we know them really well. Tom Schatz runs that group. He's excellent. And uh, I know Deb Collier, who's their uh, policy director, and uh, they are uh, one of our coalition partners. Uh, we're in a group called called uh, Coalition Against Socialized Medicine, and uh, they're one of the big groups that's active in that. So uh, we we work with them uh, definitely on all these healthcare issues. But uh, I would say more than that, we work with them on you know, all the tax and spending issues, and uh, they do an amazing job uh, finding you know, all the crazy pork projects that our money gets sent to and that kind of thing. So that's a really good group, and we do work with them. Another question is AMAC. Is that a conservative alternative to AARP? Yeah, that's a good, that, that is one of them. The other one that I like is 60 plus associations. So those are kind of the two main conservative seniors groups. And uh, I think they've got a huge opportunity here too. And I've pointed, I, you know, I've shared this survey with them. They've actually both written about it. But, you know, I told AMAC and I told 60 plus, look, you know, this is not just an opportunity for Republican politicians to score political points on this stuff. These messages are a huge business opportunity for you guys. I mean, you, you, you can really point out to any conservative out there that if they're in buying these insurance products, they're getting skimmed 5% and it's mostly helping Democrats that they don't agree with. 
And that ought to be a huge opportunity for these conservative seniors groups to peel off a lot of these members and to sell them competing products. And so we've definitely talked to those groups. We've shared these findings with the, with those groups. And, uh, you know, people should know, you know, I mean, there are a lot of, I know a lot of conservatives who say, yeah, I know ARP are liberals and I know my money's going to be helping Democrats, but, you know, I like their plan. I like their benefits. I, they have a lot of good stuff. And, you know, there are alternatives that have the same sorts of offerings and uh, are aligned with your values. So I would definitely encourage people to look at groups like AMAC and uh, 60 plus association. There may be others as well that I don't know about, uh, but uh, that is a, that's a solid group and uh, they have, they have written about uh, this, this poll. So they, they're aware of, uh, of the findings. Yeah, that was an excellent question coming in from a senior citizen. Um, I wonder and have wondered, and perhaps you can comment on this, to what extent are doctors, physicians, about what tests to give control by the insurance people, basically the government? You know, we've got a huge problem now across healthcare, which is there's been uh, massive, massive consolidation, a lot of it driven by all the government rules and regulations and bureaucracies, uh, as well as, you know, the insurance company bureaucracies. And We've now got a situation where a lot of a lot of patient care, instead of being, you know, your doctor's best clinical judgment, is driven by bureaucracies and is driven by sort of like you know medicine by number, sort of algorithmic, formulaic uh, stuff. And you know, part of it is insurance company bureaucracies, but I think even more than that, it's these health systems and it's the uh, the way that hospitals have bought up so many physician practices and integrated things, and they've got levels and they've got middle management layers. And so we've got now sort of consolidation and bureaucratization, both among the providers and among the payers. And then, of course, you've got all of that government bureaucracy on top of that. So I, I think we've got an enormous problem. And, and in a lot of places, we also have the, the trial bar, the risk of, of uh, you know, lawsuits driving a lot of the care decisions as well. Although I think, I think Florida finally passed some, some malpractice reform this time. Uh, you tell me, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, we've got, uh, I think, because people are so upset about everything that's happened from Obamacare all the way through COVID, I think that we have an opportunity to make much bigger changes uh, than any of the politicians are currently talking about. And I hope that uh, whoever the Republican candidate is this time will really say, look, you know, we're going to blow up all of this healthcare bureaucracy. We're going to blow up the bureaucracies in government. We're going to blow up, you know, CDC and HHS and FDA and, uh, and, and uh, all of that. We're going to blow up the private sector bureaucracies and the insurance companies and in these gigantic consolidated health systems. And we're going to get, you know, a functioning system where you own and control your own healthcare dollars and the physicians are independent again to making their own decisions and they're not at risk of massive lawsuits. And uh, we're going to you know, get choice and control and, and kind of get, get back to, you know, your doctor being making you know, you're exercising clinical judgment. And I think the, the more aggressive they are, the better, because I just think, you know, there's no element of healthcare that people don't hate right now. They hate big pharma. They hate the, the, the big hospital systems. They hate the insurance companies. They sure hate government. So I, I think I, I just, when I talk to these guys, I say, whatever you're planning to do on healthcare, be even more ambitious than that is, uh, you know, I, I just, I think that people are, are uh, very frustrated with all of that. And the headline in the Hill, which I'm looking at, yeah, the, it, it speaks to the poll shows 80% of older voters concerned prescription drug reform will hurt drug innovation. I don't think we've covered that topic yet. Yeah. <clears throat> Can you speak to that? Um, well, I oppose the price controls. I mean, you know, even if they'd kept the money in Medicare, I oppose the price controls because I know that when government imposes price controls, they create shortages. It happens every time. And, you know, when you create, when you put price controls on a commodity like gasoline, the shortages are obvious, right? You get gas lines, everyone goes nuts, and then you get rid of the price control. When you put price controls on something like prescription drugs, the effects are much more subtle because the marginal cost of one more pill or one more injection is pretty low. Uh, and so even with price controls, those will continue to get made for, for the 
He must be driving through a um, dead spot there, Phil. Did I drop that out there? You dropped, for, you dropped there for a second, yeah. Okay. So, you know, we, we know that price controls lose the shortages. And with something like the commodity, it's kind of obvious, right? You know, you put on price control on gasoline. There are long lines. People get angry. The price control eventually gets lifted. Well, with medicine, it's a little bit different because the price of more pills or more injections is pretty low. So you're, you're probably not getting any shortages of but we get shortages of We've cost billions of dollars to develop. And you know, the way they did the price goals, and it's particularly insidious, they have the Secretary of Health and Services set prices for the 10 most popular uh, drugs, for the 10 drugs that Medicare spends the most money on. What that does to the market is it basically says, look, if you're doing research that is speculative, it probably won't result in anything, but if it does result in something, will be your breakthrough in, in uh, Alzheimer's or something like that. You know, the way the economics of that works is you spend a lot of money on a lot of drugs that are sort of long shots because you're hoping to get that one home run that's going to pay for all of it and a return on capital for your investors and so on and so forth. If the government now says, when you get the home run, we're going to cap your reward for that. We're going to have government come in and slash the price that's paid. We're going to say you can't be too successful with the ones that are very successful. Well, what that does is now you can't do nearly as much speculating nearly as much trying and in fact instead of trying to cure cancer and go for that home run maybe now you're going to try to make a slightly better version of your current cholesterol drug or whatever it might be because you just want to get a solid single or a nice double you don't want to risk something that's so successful that it's going to get on that top 10 and get uh, chopped down by government and so what we've seen from this bill passing is a lot of cancer drug trials in particular have been canceled and um, the, a, a professor at the University of Chicago, Thomas Phillipson, says that the, the decline in private sector cancer drug investment from this bill is nine times the amount of Biden's cancer moonshot. So this Inflation Reduction Act uh, has had a massive negative impact on drug investment, research and development, particularly for cancer drugs, because of those price controls. And, you know, we didn't know if seniors would get this because the media sure hasn't been explaining it this way or talking about it. But one of the amazing results in our poll is that seniors understand that if the government uses price controls to take $280 billion out of Medicare drug spending, they're not going to be as many drugs available. And uh, 80% is a huge number. I was very pleased to see that the number was this big because I think it's, you know, true. But 80% of the older voters we surveyed said that the Inflation Reduction Act, because of its price controls, are going to, is going to result in fewer new drugs available. Uh, and that's an enormous number. And, and sort of paired with that, only 14% think they're actually going to personally pay less for prescription drugs. 55% think they're actually going to pay more. So they do not believe that government taking over pricing will actually save them money. Um, but they do think it's going to reduce the availability of new drugs. So it is a and really underscores the point I was making about, like, Republicans can win this debate. They stop running away from it if they stand and explain these things. You know, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to have to take the bottom of our break. And if you can hang on, I don't know your schedule. You're driving. Are you available after the break here in about five minutes? If you – I, I can get back on with video in five minutes because I'm pretty close to home now. Okay, okay. So why don't I drop off and then I'll get on home. Okay, I'll wait to see, and I'll, I will, I've got some things we can do until we see you again. I'm talking with Phil per Kirpin, who is en route here. All from, right, sounds good. Okay, taking his kids to camp and always is able to talk and drive in D.C. Can you imagine? Uh, we're going to take a break now for Ward's Weather. We'll be right back. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. 
This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On-the-Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pat him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward's Weather Report, brought to you by Lewis Oil, Chevron Stations, great supporter of the Ward Scott Files. Well, it's warm, but it's getting a little cooler. If you call two degrees lower, cooler, about in the mid-70s this morning, about in the low 90s right now, or project to go to in the Piney Woods here in North Central Florida. It's, of course, hot all over the country, but one of the stories which interested me is the effect the heat has on honeybees. You hear at the halftime here somebody say all bees poop. That was an interview from years ago of a honeybee keeper. And we were curious back then on the Ward Scott Files about how many pollinations were dependent upon the presence of honeybees, in particular in that particular interview, blueberries. But so many are uh, pollinated by honeybees, and yet honeybees are affected by the heat. If it's too hot for them, uh, they they begin to uh, suffer. So there's a move now foot among honeybee keepers to make sure that these bees are well watered because without honeybees, we don't have a lot of the fruit. Humans have put bee habitats in jeopardy also by encroaching, as you can imagine, on places where honeybees need to be kept. So it's quite a story. It's um, interesting to know how many things really are never brought up with this blanket of climate change. Um, You can do something about the honeybees, water them. It'll take care of the problem quite nicely. We're talking with Phil Kirp, and he's en route. We've been talking with him for about a half an hour as he's been driving in D.C. traffic. He's going to be connecting with us again, audio and visual, in a moment from his home where he's en route right now. Uh, We have been talking about a perplexing issue, and it will get more perplexing for you as you get older, I promise you, and that is good health care. We've covered this topic a number of ways for you on the Ward Scott Files. We've had several doctors who've talked about different aspects of how it's affected the medical world. We had an excellent show while Tim Martin was the host about how transgenderism has become a medical issue and corrupted really what you would think of as medical care. I thought that was an excellent show. So we're talking with Phil now about what it costs, where your money goes, how the government, once again, gets its greedy hands on your money. It cheats you. What it says and promises it's going to use the money for, why doesn't use the money on that at all? It'll shift it to fill up some other pot of money. You know, I was a city manager at one time, and I wouldn't let my commissioners do that. 
if the commissioners came to me and say they wanted me to move money from one pot to another pot to cover deficiency in that other pot, I'd say, no, you find a way to fill that deficient pot with money. I'm not taking money out of the flush pot. I guess I was maybe a rebel in that as a city manager because I just wouldn't let them do it. And if they didn't like it, they could fire me. But, you know, the city managers control the staff and all that budgeting and everything else. The commissioners are the policymakers. So it's an art of interacting with them. Many, many times they don't know what they're talking about, but they have a political face that they want to keep with the public. And so they're willing to sacrifice your trust to keep their face. This is pretty much the way politics works, unfortunately. I got to tell you, I don't ever see too many exceptions to that. And it takes a very strong person to stand up to them. Right now, of course, the person who is on the outs most with the political system is, of course, Trump. Trump doesn't come from the political system. He didn't need the job. He was a billionaire. Um, They didn't like the way he didn't respect their way of doing things, one can postulate, and went after him and have been going after him and will continue to go after him because they know if by some way or another he becomes the president, they will be sought after again. Phil Kirpin, I see, is checking back on with us, and I assume he will be visual and audio in just a moment. So uh, that's my take on how government uh, rips us off. It's just uh, there's nobody, no watchdog there to watch him or no honest politician to live up to his promise with you. Then you have a, a lot, a lot of trouble. And uh, that's basically where we are in the country right now. Hello, Phil. I see you got the Mets there in the background. How are the Mets doing? Horrible. Horrible. Oh, my golly. They just traded away all their players and they uh, they got swept by the horrendous Kansas City Royals. And uh, I don't know. They gave up on the season, and they and it was correct to. So, what are you going to do? I tell you what, uh, we've been talking about the health care. Anything else American Commitment is doing that we can share in a little bit of time? We got about another twenty minutes. Sure, we're um, you know the Congress goes out in August, and so uh, that's good. And I'm passing stupid things and doing their usual nonsense. But uh, the Biden administration is being extraordinarily aggressive on the regulatory front. And so there are a lot of comment dockets that we're encouraging people to weigh in on. Uh, we've got the EPA's power plant rules to try to shut down fossil fuel power plants, which is going to be a disaster. Uh, they're saying, you know, they're basically mandating carbon capture and storage by 2040. This technology doesn't even exist. So they're essentially going to force lots of power plants to shut down. Prices are going to go haywire. We've got the, um, We've also got EPA's uh, auto rules to try to force everyone to buy electric cars. We're going to be fighting against those. We've got a lot of crazy labor rules that are coming out of the Labor Department. And so our our big focus, uh, while Congress is out, is trying to stop all of the abusive regulations that we're getting from the Biden administration. And, you know, I think the the regulatory problem is getting less attention than it need, than it deserves right now. We all remember how aggressive Obama was with regulations with his, his pen and his phone and he was sort of flamboyant about it and they put all kinds of crazy expensive regulations in uh, but a new study from uh, Professor Casey Mulligan from the University of Chicago shows that Biden's regulations already even before a lot of these big new ones that are coming are actually even more expensive than Obama's. Uh, he calculated that Obama's regulations cost uh, the average household about $4,600 per year. No, I'm sorry, about $4,300 per year uh, in new regulatory costs. Uh, Trump was actually net deregulatory. He cut regulatory costs about $2,600 per household per year, which is incredible. It's almost impossible to ever have a president who's net deregulatory in terms of their burden on the economy. So that was a really one of the most remarkable Trump successes. But Biden has brought back everything that Obama was doing and more. And in fact, the costs of Biden regulations are about $5,000 per household per year. So he's done Obama, he's beating Obama 
uh, by a decent margin, which is crazy because I, I wasn't sure we would ever see someone as uh, abusive in terms of aggressive overregulation as Obama. And we have someone right now who's even worse. And I don't think it's getting all the attention that it needs. And so we're really focused on that. And we're going to be, if people are on our email list or if they're not and they want to sign up for it on, on AmericanCommitment.org, we're going to be doing a whole series of action alerts, uh, calling on people to write into specific regulatory agencies to try to push back on a lot of these things that are happening. And the way that we do that is we send you an email and explain what the issue is. Then you come to our site and we've got a pre-written comment that you can send as is or edit however you want. And then we deliver it to the official uh, comment doc. And a lot of people say, well, they're just going to ignore me. So what's the point? But I think it's really important to do because what happens is the liberal groups send in thousands of comments on these things. And then these agencies say, well, everyone said we should do it. So, of course, it's a great idea. So we can at least shame them a little bit and undercut that message and make it much harder for them to argue that these are things that the American people want. And so that's kind of going to be our major focus in August with Congress out is trying to just be like one a week, we're going to pick one and uh, just try to get people organized to write in on them. Well, you know, as you know, I'm sure Wall Street Journal had this very point in one of your uh, opinion pages uh, titled Biden's Summer Regulatory Onslaught. And it's not for naught that he's doing this while Congress is out of town. Uh, therefore, everybody is looking the other way, if you will. And um, the electric car hoax, I think it's a hoax um, because of all sorts. It's not reducing the world pollution. It's actually probably creating more. Uh, but squeezing people out of fossil fuel transportation is, I think, the end goal. Uh, you know, this regulatory thing, making the energy department reduce the miles uh, per gallon equivalent um, um, or EVs to get it over the hump, the F-150, yeah. for example. Um, ultimately, the metric million, the metric tons um, don't even begin to approach what the Canadian wildfires are projected to release this year. It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense, Ward. I mean, and, and just so people understand, they wrote these rules in terms of miles per gallon because they think they've got legal authority to do it that way. But what they're really doing is mandating electric vehicle sales because they've calculated these miles per gallon to be much higher than you can ever get with internal combustion engines. And so the the embedded assumptions are that for model year 2026, we'll be at 17% of all vehicle sales being electric vehicles. And for model year 2027, we'll be at 30%. Now, we're at about 8% now, and almost all of it's in California. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of forcing. And then the way it works is the manufacturers, when they do sell an internal combustion vehicle, they've got to purchase a credit from a company that sold electric vehicles. And so, you know, every company needs to be in compliance with these mandates. And so, you know, if you're a normal company that sells normal cars and trucks, you're not going to be at 17% electric for model year 26, and you're definitely not going to be at 30% for model year 27. So what do you have to do? You have to go buy credits from Tesla or someone else. And so you're then building in a higher price for the internal combustion vehicle to subsidize the rich person in California that's getting the electric vehicle on top of all the tax subsidies that we give them and all the other goodies. And so it's a huge wealth transfer that's embedded in all of this. But, you know, there's also a problem because there aren't going to be enough credits. The overall market's not going to be at 30% electric vehicle sales for model year 27. So what's going to happen is the supply of internal combustion vehicles is going to be artificially suppressed because manufacturers are not going to be able to sell them if they can't get the credit to offset it. And the credits are not going to exist because there aren't going to be that many sales of electric vehicles. And so what's going to happen um by model year 27, which of course is in calendar year 26, because they hit earlier, what's going to happen is the prices are going to go haywire and they're going to be real shortages. You're not going to be able to get the car and truck that you want because the manufacturer is not going to be able to sell it because they can't get the credit from the electric. And so they are going to absolutely destroy uh, the market for new automobiles in this country. And people are going to be stuck driving old ones for longer than they want to be and buying used ones. And it's just going to wreak havoc and uh, dealers are going to get absolutely hammered as well. And it's just very ill-considered. And the the craziest part about it is not only do things like wildfires and volcano eruptions, other natural phenomena create way more CO2, but e- even if the only thing you cared about was reducing CO2 emissions from vehicles, this would be an insane policy because with the amount of lithium and other minerals that go into the battery pack of a 
pure electric vehicle, you could have produced six plug-in hybrids. You could have produced 30, you know, Prius-type hybrids, okay? So, and the emissions reductions from hybrids would have been much greater than the emissions reductions from the far smaller amount of electric vehicles that you can create with those resources. And so this is not about emissions reductions. This is about a an irrational hatred for fossil fuels. I mean, they just, they, they only like pure EVs. They hate hybrids because a hybrid has a gas engine in it. Otherwise, you can't make sense of what they're doing. Bill, excellent, excellent, excellent summation. That's the best I've heard. By the way, I think my microphone is blending out what I'm having right on my head. So uh, good for that. I don't believe you hear the, the fellows up there doing their job before. I it at all. You don't hear it? Good, good, good. Well, um, that's an excellent summation. And, you know, it's uh, we have Ted Yoho on Wednesday with us, who was a you know congressman from this area. And the thing he laments most about his experience there is the lack of leadership, Bill. You know, you and I understand these things. It's certainly American commitment understands it. The people on the pavement even understand it. But why don't the politicians, where is the disconnect? Is it in just the immo- immoral behavior of them? Or what What have we got wrong about all this? I, I don't want to get out of rabbit hole here. But- well, I think that what the politicians figured out, some starting some 50 years ago when all the environmental laws passed, what the politicians figured out is you can pass these broad, vague laws and talk about your wonderful good intentions and how much you love you know, puppy dogs and ice cream cones. And then let the bureaucrats sort it all out. And when they do things that are dumb, you can say, oh, it's terrible. I'm so against that. But, you know, you can just go on and pass the next broad vague law or you can go to the next fundraiser and whatever. And uh, so we've got this problem where our legislators don't want to legislate. They want to do everything but legislate. They want to do press releases and grandstanding and that kind of thing, but they don't really want to make the important decisions. And that's why we have this problem with all of the power sort of shifting into the bureaucracies. And uh, we've been trying to combat this. We've got a bill called the RAINS Act that I've talked about on your show before that would uh, require Congress to vote on major regulations before they can take effect. And uh, we actually passed it again in the House this year. Um, I think your congresswoman is actually the lead sponsor of that bill now in the House, Kat Kamek. Uh, so um, only one Democrat voted for it, though. One Democrat, Jared Golden from Maine, which tells you basically every Democrat in Congress except one thinks it's great that the most important economic policies aren't even voted on by Congress. They think that's wonderful. That's the way it should be. Just let the bureaucrats do it all. And, you know, we won't take any responsibility for actually, you know, doing, doing the job of making important policy decisions for the country. So that's a big problem. Um, we did a survey in 2016. We were able to get every single Republican presidential candidate that year to say they would sign that bill if it were passed. Uh, which is important because I think once you become president, you probably wouldn't want to sign something that reduces the power of the bureaucracies under you. So we're going to do that again this year. We're going to try to get all the candidates again this year to say they would sign that. And we're going to try to finally get it past the finish line and, uh, you know, sort of force Congress to vote on these things. Because, of course, Congress votes for lots of stupid things. But at least if Congress votes for it, you can, like, look up how they voted and vote them out of office and hold them accountable when the bureaucrats are doing it. You only get that one vote every four years for president, and then the whole, you know, the st- everything is everything rides on that, and you can have a great four-year breather where regulations actually recede under someone like Trump, but then Democrats get in and they put it all back in, back to the races. So I think we've got to, um, we've got to sort of peel it back in a more permanent way, uh, and so that's kind of what we're, tr- we're, we're what we're trying to figure out how to do. And uh, you know, I think Reins Act is part of that. There are other things we need to do, frankly. What I really think Congress should do is instead of writing these laws and punting all the decision making to the Department of Labor and the EPA and HHS, they ought to form their own committees of experts in these subject areas. And they ought to do the regulation writing themselves in Congress and then bring it to the floor and pass these things as laws. And they ought to hire the appropriate staff to build the expertise uh, instead of just saying, oh, we defer to the experts at the agencies, because the experts at the agencies are usually left-wing maniacs, and they're not accountable to anyone. The education department has come up in the little chat line here, too, as a place where Biden has not given up on his loan forgiveness scheme. Yeah. 
It's unbelievable. That's a really good point. Uh, there's nothing. There's going to be a massive uh, regulatory fight over this too, because what you know they, they've got two things going. One of them is they've got these changes to income-driven repayment, where they want to basically make it so that a lot of people would never have to make any payments at all. The taxpayers end up picking up the full cost just based on the way they structured that. Um, and they've also got an effort to do another blanket student loan forgiveness, which you know, is really a transfer from borrowers to taxpayers. And so they're now going to do what's called a reg-neg, a regulatory negotiation or a negotiated rulemaking. And um, they're going to put, you know, they'll have representatives from four-year colleges and two-year colleges and crazy left-wing groups. And um, I'm going, one of the things we're going to do a comment campaign on when the docket opens officially, and I don't think it has yet unless I missed it, is we're going to try to get as many people as possible to write into the education department and say, you have to have a taxpayer advocate in that reg- in that regulatory negotiations. You have to have someone in that room saying, we can't just spend unlimited billions of taxpayer dollars in these giveaways. We need to have some fiscal responsibility. And, you know, I think if a lot of us write in and tell them one of the people on that board, on that, uh, you know, on that regnet committee has to be a taxpayer advocate and they ignore us, boy, uh, we can really, I think, shame them for that. And, uh, and I think if enough of us write in and demand it, we can get someone in that room, at least one voice in that room, who'll say, you know, wait, wait a second, dumping hundreds of billions of dollars on taxpayers is not responsible. And so that's, uh, that's how we're going to engage with that. And we're definitely going to be on top of it. And uh, for people who may be unaware, I was actually the first person to write that Missouri would have the best standing claim based on their Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority being a servicer of direct federal loans, which ended up being the argument that won at the Supreme Court in the last round of this. So we've been involved in this and uh, we're going to stay involved in it. But uh, that's a really good point, because when we talk about regulatory costs, boy, if they can transfer hundreds of billions of dollars of loans onto taxpayers, that goes right to the top as the most. Actually, it might still be not quite as expensive as what they're doing with automobiles. But it'd be pretty close to the top. It'd be either number one or number two in terms of its uh, cost. And there's absolutely nothing productive about it. And it doesn't create anything to the GNP or um, anything. I mean, it's just political, pure, raw, naked politics, it appears. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what it is. I mean, look, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's basically... The Democrats are saying, look, we understand that most of the people who vote Republican didn't go to college. Most of the people who vote Democrat did go to college. So let's take money from the people who vote Republican and give it to the people who vote Democrat. I mean, that's is what that it is. Lo- if you, is that if the you logic? Boil it down. Is that the logic? I, I think so. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I think it's illogical, but I think that's what they're thinking. Because if they really wanted to strengthen the country, they would strengthen the trades. Of course. Yeah, that's where we have huge shortages. I mean, every skilled trade, we have huge shortages right now. So these, yeah, guys, roofing, these guys roofing right here. None of them speaks English. OK, they're all from Guatemala. They started yesterday morning. It's about a 3000 square foot building here. 44,000, probably. They started yesterday morning at seven and worked till seven last night. OK, they were here at seven this morning. They don't talk about anything but work. Where did our workforce go? You know, is there must be? A lot of them are sitting at home playing video games. and Yeah, yeah. We we don't have, they're all from Guatemala, you know? So, and they all, unfortunately, um, you know, we can speak Spanish with them. I don't think we could talk with them other than that. So, they just work. Fortunately, you don't hear any of it, but I hear it. But it's right over the studio right now. But that's okay. We know we got to do it when you don't have the rain. Talking with Phil Kirp and Phil, we got about five minutes left here, and uh, it's always great to talk with you. Uh, we want to promote. I want to find a way to do this. Connect a little more regularly with the Ward Scott Files and the American Commitment. When you've got legislative advocacy that you want yeah. help with, and I'm, I don't know how to do that, but we need to do that somehow, some way. Um, so make sure you're on our email list. You can sign up on AmericanCommitment.org. And, uh, you know, we had a we had a staff turnover. So the guy who was running our email program left, but I've hired that position now. So we're going to, I think, do a much better job of getting those uh, out again pretty regularly. Well, some way we can advertise that and make that more doable, make people informed. Because, uh, like you say, now, if they don't hear anything from the public, they assume the public doesn't know and they can get away with it. 
Well, it's yeah. worse than that word because they hear from, you know, the green groups and the there labor you unions. And so, you know, they, they, the left groups always make sure to throw a couple thousand comments. Oh, it's so wonderful. Thank you for doing this. You should be even do even more. And so um, you got to, we, we got to engage some regular people in these goofy government processes just to uh, sh- maybe shame them a little bit. That, that That is really, really the tough call is how do we get the quote regular people who are doing the work of the world um, and who really trust the people they thought they could trust. Of course, now I think trust is all but gone in government. I don't, with all this corruption of all these institutions, pretty plain. Everybody sees the double standards of justice. Um, I don't know what we got left. What do the people trust? I mean, huh? no, honestly, um, I think if institutions are untrustworthy, it's probably good that people are learning that. Uh, it's probably better than the alternative of it being that way, but people not knowing. So that's kind of how I try to look at it, glass half full. But you're right. I mean, it's unbelievable. In the last few weeks, we've seen these unbelievably explosive revelations about Biden family corruption and uh the response is every is more Trump indictments, basically. I mean, this is how they this is how they change the subject. And uh, that all times that Biden was yeah. put on the phone with Hunter's overseas business partners, he had no idea yeah. that who they were or that there was any business involved. He thought they were just chit chatting about the weather or whatever. They say, oh, he was in, he was in, he was an unwitting, he was unwittingly, okay. I mean, they want us to believe this guy is not a criminal. He's just the world's biggest moron who has no clue what's going on around him. And the thing is, you think about it and you're like, for him, you're like, maybe, like for that guy, I guess. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I don't know. So is he being snookered, is he being snookered by Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, oh, right, right, right. If if his son can easily trick him yeah. into talking to his shady like foreign business guys without knowing what's going on, then what is literally every world leader doing right now? Yeah. Right? I mean, think about think about how pathetic this is as an excuse for him. It's like if this excuse is actually true, I think it's even more scary than him just being like a corrupt dude. Right? I mean Yeah. And why people don't point that out right away. Hey, listen, if that's the case, then you know, what about this and what about that? You know? Um, one last question. I never get time to, but it's come in. Saudi Arabia going up on gas prices, you know, shutting back oil. They in cahoots with the EV people. Somebody wanted to know <laughs> what's, is there some kind of worldwide? <laughs> Why would they be? They want to sell more. No, oil. I mean, the Saudis, look, the Saudis. Transition because all of their wealth is tied up in, oil i mean that's the one you know they're one trick pony obviously and um you know one of the things that remains to be seen if if the evs really start getting traction if they start getting significant market share significant momentum i do think you'll see the saudis turn all the spigots on and drop the oil price down dramatically and try to just blast them out on price and we kind of we kind of saw this in the late 1990s um when some of these alternative technologies were sort of getting off the ground and the Saudis took the barrel price down to like 10 bucks and they just blew everything out economically. Now they don't have the swing capacity to do that anymore. They can't take it to 10 bucks, but they might be able to take it down to 30 or 40, something like that. And, you know, if that happens, you know, I, I would love it, frankly, because it means we'll see dollar gasoline again, dollar fifty, yeah. whatever it is. So it is possible that we'll see them try to respond geo geostrategically by really turning on the, the spigots. But, you know, it's much harder for them to do that than it used to be because they they still have some swing capacity, of course. But the United States now has the most swing capacity of anywhere in the world because of the horizontal drilling and fracking revolution, what went on in North Dakota and other places. So, you know, we now have the ability to, if we wanted to, you know, if they, if, one of the things I worry about, though, is if you have a Democratic administration in, right, and the Saudis say, we're going to pump up production through the roof to knock prices down to try to win market share back. You know, if you have a Democratic administration in, they're crazy enough to say, oh, we'll shut down you know, tons of U.S. production to keep prices high, which would be the worst thing you could do. So I, I don't know. I, I think that we might see some politics being played with the oil price. It's certainly possible. 
but uh, it's sort of a different lay of the land than it was uh, when we've seen that in the past. The Saudis don't have nearly as much price-setting power as they used to because of how much U.S. production has increased. Uh, we're number one in oil production. We have more higher production than Saudi Arabia now, uh, or at least we were under Trump. Maybe it's we're back behind them now. I haven't looked recently, but we have the ability to be number one. Well, Phil, thanks so much for joining us today. A great conversation, and uh, we'll stay in touch. We've got to scoot at 10 o'clock. So have a great weekend, and uh, you you navigated once again DC traffic safely. <laughs> uh, somebody did cut me off. That was that. Really oh happened. golly! Oh golly! Have a great weekend, everybody. Wardog Command Center out.